I'm Martin Reeves, Chairman of the BC Henderson Institute. Welcome to our Thinkers and Ideas podcast, where we discuss important new books and ideas in business. Joining me today is Rajiv Shah. Rajiv serves as the president of the Rockefeller Foundation, and prior to that, he was administrator for USAID, as well as director at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. He's led successfully many large-scale social transformative efforts around the globe on such things as child immunization, fighting against hunger and energy poverty, and providing relief from humanitarian disasters. And he's here today to talk about all of that because he's just written a book about it called Big Bets, How Large-Scale Change Really Happens, which comes out in October of this year. In it, Rajiv recounts his various experiences on these projects, failures as well as successes, and extracts what he sees as the, the common denominator of successful change, and especially the idea that we need to move from an idea of good enough to an idea of, of big enough, which I'll be asking him about. So congratulations on the book, Rajiv, and thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you, Martin. It's great to be with you. I often say there's nothing more important in business than change, and there's nothing more broken than change. And uh, if I get it correctly, your, your book sort of says mindset is really important for change. Tell us about that a little bit. Well, I find so often when we're trying to tackle some of the biggest challenges of our time, widespread hunger that causes violence and conflict, pandemics that can potentially kill millions of people, tens of millions of people in a continent or across the globe, or efforts to address an energy transition that is literally necessary to save our planet. Too often when we tackle the biggest subjects of our time, we get stuck in what I call in the book the aspiration trap. We, we sort of set our sights too low. We look for incremental improvements that are doing good enough. We feel good about that. And then we give ourselves a pat on the back and, and move on, as opposed to being really rigorous and businesslike about how do we actually solve these big global problems. And so a big bet in my recollection and in the context of the book is really an effort to embrace a big goal, to set a big goal, to find fresh, innovative solutions that could help us actually solve those problems, and to build the partnerships and the discipline of measuring results necessary to do so. Well, that sounds very relevant to business in that change and uh, large-scale change is, of course, no stranger to business, including actually the increasing social responsibilities of business. So business, in a sense, has more and more to do with the problems you're directly talking about in the book. So let's go through some of the ideas in the book. You have a very, I think, straightforward structure for the book. You, you talk about a project and an idea in each chapter. And so perhaps we could tick through some of those. So your first big idea is ask simple questions. And you, you link that to the Gates Foundation project on vaccinating children. So, so tell us about the importance of asking simple questions. Well, as I write about in the book, I cut my teeth on big bets and really learned the methodology from Bill and Melinda Gates in those early days of the Gates Foundation. They had read an article about rotavirus as a disease killing hundreds of thousands of kids around the world and realized that most kids in emerging economies didn't have access to basic childhood vaccinations. And so we asked ourselves, how would you actually vaccinate every child on the planet with all of the vaccines available that would save child lives? And at the time, I think very few people were asking and answering that question. And Bill kept coming back and meeting after meeting to this simple question around, well, what does it cost to vaccinate a child? And can you multiply that cost by the number of unvaccinated kids? We want to get a sense of 
we're willing to put in at the time, you know, in 2000, $750 million in, in one grant. But we knew that was just a drop in the bucket of what it would take. And that discipline of asking and answering those simple questions ultimately gave us a roadmap for how to vaccinate the world. So if I understand correctly, the idea of the simple question is, is the big direct question as opposed to what something more technical, something that more like an expert in the area would ask? Yeah, exactly. And, and frankly, it, it was twofold. It was first sort of tethered to the concept that we needed to know the answer so that we understood what it would cost to vaccinate every child on the planet. And, and we didn't fall into this trap of just getting 10% of the kids, a small improvement in, in childhood vaccination, being happy with that. And the second is it actually helped us craft a strategy because in order to answer that question, you actually had to know how much does it cost to get syringes for, for this exercise? What is an affordable vaccine price, cost of goods, that would allow us to scale this up across a birth cohort of 104 million kids born every year? You had to understand what's the cost of delivery? What are the, what do the human resource costs? What are the supply chain costs? What are the cold storage costs? And in doing that analysis, as your listeners would appreciate, you basically identify a business strategy for vaccinating kids across the planet. So let's go on to the second idea in the book, which is jumping first. And you link that also to the, the vaccination project. The idea seems to be that if you actually change the situation, if you commit as a leader in the sector, you transform the problem, you make it more possible for others to join. Is that, is that the essential idea? Well, it, it is. I'd go a little bit farther and say it's really about taking risk. In the business sector, we celebrate entrepreneurs who, who take risks, even when those early risks are a bit outlandish and not often you know, grounded in reality in every context. And yet, when we try to tackle social challenges, we tend to be very, very conservative in our thinking and our behavior. And so I write in the book about really committing the Gates Foundation to guaranteeing a very unique social impact bond, the first of its kind, to transform the way the world raised funds for vaccinations. We ultimately did that. It succeeded. We didn't, at the end of the day, need the Gates guarantee because a number of European governments led by Gordon Brown, who was chancellor of the Exchequer at the time, came together to issue the world's first immunization bond, raised $4 billion, transformed the global market for vaccines. And over time, allowed the Vaccine Alliance to vaccinate 980 million kids and save 16 million child lives. So something to do with leading and something to do with, with pioneering and something to do with ambition then? Yeah. And the basic point is if you go first, if you, if you say, look, we'll guarantee this structure, it allows other partners to have the confidence that they are joining you. As opposed to in the social sector, too often we go to others and we say, you should do this, you should do that, you should do this. And we're not willing to put ourselves out there and take those risks first. So I found as the person tasked with stitching together this global coalition over multiple years, I don't think it ever would have come together had we not jumped first. And that's why that's the lesson of that chapter. Then we have opening the term styles as you, you term it, which you link to the earthquake relief in, in Haiti. Tell us about opening the turnstiles. Well, you know, my first week on the job at the U.S. Agency for International Development, I was President Obama's U.S. aid administrator. There was a devastating earthquake that almost instantaneously jeopardized the lives of nearly 250,000 people in Port-au-Prince, Haiti. And to mount a swift and aggressive and coordinated response, 
I found myself in charge of a global humanitarian operation that depended on tremendous military assets, a lot of private sector engagement, I think 54 countries around the world and the US. And very simply put, in order to build a culture in our emergency response team of everyone is in this together, we had to literally open the turnstiles, these little doors, these gates that kept people out of the USAID operations center and say, let's just open them up, let everybody in, treat everybody the same and build that common culture of we're going we're gonna to sleep here, we're going to work around the clock, we're going to save lives when lives can be saved, and we're going to do it by listening to everyone's voice equally and, and making people feel like part of a team. And, and I think the result was a civil military collaboration that, that really, across the course of humanitarian history, stands apart as just an outstanding civ mill shared operation. And that goes a little bit against the sort of culture of, of government in terms of security and preventing access and departmental rivalries and so on, does it? Is, is that the point? That is the point, but I, I'd say it's not just government. I've been in many NGOs and certainly many big companies where turf matters, right? Like people want to be accountable for what they do singularly, and they want their team or their division or their business unit to be in charge. And sometimes you are actually most effective at being in charge when you open the doors, let everybody in and build that sense of common team. And I, I will say I was fortunate in that example. You know, the people we got to work with, no matter what, how many stars they had on their clothing because they were in the military or no matter what their experience was, people showed up with the desire to save lives at a time when showing the world our moral courage meant a lot to our government, to our relief effort, and to the people in Haiti that had just been devastated. And I do believe business leaders can learn from that, that when you tap into that special, unique commitment people have to do good, you can sometimes break the barriers that, that hold back teams. And we don't have time to go through all of the ideas, unfortunately, but let me just pick a couple of others that stood out for me. You talked about the need to give up control in order to be successful. Tell me about that, because obviously one doesn't want to lose the ability to coordinate or one doesn't want to lose the leadership imperative. So what were you getting at with the idea of needing to give up control to be successful? Well, you know, across throughout the book, I describe big social change efforts that fundamentally depend on unlikely partners coming together. Sometimes those unlikely partners are civilian humanitarian responders and the United States military. Sometimes they're big food companies and public sector types that don't always trust those big food companies, but they needed to during times of addressing famine and crisis. And sometimes in particular, they are building these bridges across Republicans and Democrats who you know, are, are, seem to be sworn to oppose each other's ideas and, and values. And in all of those examples, I've learned that in order to really get people to work together, you have to give them a sense of ownership. Often in business, if you're the entrepreneur, the instigator of some great idea, if you continue to occupy that position, it's hard for other people to come on board and feel as vested as you are in the success of that effort. So giving up control, I talk about a number of different examples, but I think it's something anyone can learn in terms of building and managing large, complex alliances. I guess that's linked to another of your imperatives, which is, I can imagine that working if you have the right people on board, and indeed one of your other imperatives is knowing who you're betting on. Tell us about that. Well, I do talk in the book about times when I failed. 
and that chapter is is about an effort we had pursued under a presidential program called Power Africa when when I was working with President Obama to help build what would have been the largest renewable energy project, a large scale hydro dam in the Democratic Republic of Congo, it would have provided electricity to more than two hundred million people who basically didn't have it and as a result live in deep poverty. And I was excited, enthusiastic about it, but I learned over time that in order to succeed at these efforts, and frankly, for any corporate effort as well, you know, you really have to map out who's important as a decision maker and how are you going to get them on board in the process. In this particular case, I needed both the president of the DRC and the chairman of the Senate Appropriations Committee to agree to this project and to agree to this project under terms that were unique. It was a big US-China collaboration. It required a peace deal with environmental groups, and it required adopting transparency legislation that would prevent corruption in that context. And in, in both cases, even though the senator in question, Patrick Leahy, was someone I knew well and admired, and I think he admired and supported my work, I didn't do enough to understand you know, what his politics were and that, that he'd have a hard time supporting a big hydro project anywhere in the world. And the president of the DRC, I should have understood, was, was unlikely to agree to the terms we were requiring in order to do the deal to begin with. And had I thought those things through earlier, I could have saved myself a lot of public embarrassment and saved my team a lot of time, effort, and energy and opportunity cost. Maybe moving to a few sort of broader questions, and clearly we're talking today because, you know, we see the relevance of everything you said about change to corporate change. And indeed, in recent years, I, I think the, the nonprofit sector has taken many lessons from the business world in terms of being businesslike about operations and leadership. Do you think there are any lessons in the opposite direction, namely things that are unique about the nonprofit sector that corporations could heed? I do. I think there are two, two in particular. One is what I talk about of just having this big bet mindset, you know, setting a big goal and reminding everyone on the team that the goal is, you know, save 200,000 lives in the heat of a humanitarian crisis or, you know, whatever your corporate version of that big audacious goal is. And, and it's too easy for teams to fall into incremental thinking, which then makes it tougher to get the best out of everyone involved. And I'd say the second one that goes the other way is increasingly effective social change efforts are public-private. They really do span and require collaboration across those two parts of society broadly. And I suspect business leaders, executives, emerging leaders would be better served if they grow their own understanding of how to do public-private. Like where can, where can government and people who are public service oriented add value to the mission and what are the vehicles that are productive to engage in those kinds of collaborations as opposed to otherwise. Indeed, most corporations, I think, are doing much more in areas of social and public interest than they were 10 years ago, say. And I think there are champions of that idea and critics of that idea. The critics would say, well, corporations are not fundamentally democratically accountable, or how could they really do anything but maximize the profit motive? And maybe the proponents would say, well, you know, business is a tremendous resource and it's in their own interest to get interested in these sorts of issues. But from your very unique vantage point, how do you read the engagement of business in these sorts of issues and, and what sort of cautions would you give? I would say the big bets of the future, 
protecting our planet from extraordinary threats like climate change, preventing the next large-scale pandemics that can wipe out a huge percentage of humanity, or even avoiding the coming crises in, in hunger, health, energy that seem to be encroaching upon us faster than we realize, fundamentally require public-private partnership to solve. And I think companies can do very, very well by understanding that and being part of the solution. It's not just about you know, ESG or social impact. It is really about customers of the future will demand that the companies that they're investing in and that they are buying products from share values that they think are increasingly important to protect our future and respect our common humanity. And so you know, I think there's so many examples of great businesses out there that already understand that authentically and are doing it. And to me, it's, a, it's an absolute imperative for the corporate world to see how they are part of the solution, not by giving money away in a charitable sense, but by building business models and partnerships that allow their customers and stakeholders to see that they are part of the solution. One of the things connected to that that we like to, to think about a lot of the Henderson Institute is, is reinvention or reimagination. You know, every business has to exploit and it also has to explore. And, and often one becomes a prisoner of the assumptions underpinning current success. And yourself in the book talk about continuous experimentation as, as being a sort of a key success factor. And you're now part of a very proud and successful and longstanding organization what sort of leadership techniques do you use or how do you think about the problem of, of reimagination, not become a prisoner of your own past success? That's such a great question because the Rockefeller Foundation has been around for 110 years. It's been awarded multiple Nobel Prizes. It has actually contributed to 157 Nobel Prizes in its time making charitable endeavors more accessible. And it's very, very easy to get trapped in that illustrious and amazing history. And so we find we have to constantly pivot and bring the whole organization with us to meet the moment in the moment we are. There's a chapter in the book called Pivot, which is about transitioning the foundation within days to weeks to, to really squarely focus on fighting COVID at home and around the world in 2020, in the spring of 2020. And we're just executing another pivot right now because we just announced our next big bet, which is a billion-dollar commitment to fight climate change over the next five years. And, you know, leaders everywhere have to embrace and learn how to drive change in a global environment that just demands it. How specifically do you counter the idea that we're successful, we've done this 100 times before, and we know the answer, and it's obvious? How do you get that sort of hunger and curiosity that is the basis for the entire organization historically? You know, to me, it's, it comes back to the title of the book, Big Bets. It's you get people excited, motivated about the challenges that are in front of us, not the accomplishments that are behind us. And frankly, we get to work on issues like global climate change and its impact on hunger, on health, on energy poverty, on whether in America workers will have employment opportunities in the future. And those are deep, meaningful problems. And when we can craft kind of new, innovative solutions and be out front in making them something that's accessible at scale, it gets people excited that, hey, I'm not just living the past, I'm solving the future. And that's really what Big Bets is about. It's why I hope listeners pick up a copy of the book. 
Because I think that spirit of I can help solve the future is the spirit we need in people in public service and people in the nonprofit sector, but really in people in business. My own field is, is strategy, and historically, there's been a conflation of strategy and planning. Of course, strategy was never only planning, but it's very much associated with planning. It struck me that the problems you're talking about in your book are probably the least planable problems on earth. You're dealing with unknown stakeholders, you know, new problems, massive large-scale collaborations. How would you describe the discipline and the systematic approach that you apply to a change process that stops short of planning? which presumably wouldn't be particularly effective in, in such circumstances. Well, as you know, you have to do some planning no matter what you're doing. You know, one of the chapters in the book is about fighting Ebola in West Africa in 2014. And that was a crisis that could have had 1.6 million people having Ebola and it could have spread all over parts of the world. And instead, we contained it in West Africa and we brought it to an end with about 11,000 deaths and 30,000 total cases. And the key was a little bit of planning, but a whole lot of measurement measuring who has Ebola, exactly where they are, doing whatever it took, including putting young people on motorbikes to, to go out and scope and validate data points, giving people mobile connectivity to send data in faster, putting bioterror labs in nine different spots in rural Liberia so you could reduce the time of data collection and validation and increase the responsiveness. And it is interesting the way you ask the question, you can reduce the amount of planning if you can collect fast, even if it's imperfect, but fast data that allow you to just be responsive and to improve on performance. And that is a skill I think comes from the private sector that needs to be more effectively adopted in the public sector. So I think that's a big part of how you deal with the fact that these problems are often too complex and too multifaceted to have some super elegant plan that's just going to work. So let me ask you a question about leaders, because in, in, in a certain sense, your book is about um, leadership. It's, it's about the mindset that the senior people bring to these change projects you're talking about. One of the things I've, it's quite clear from the numbers of the demographics of leadership is that the, the average age of senior leaders in, in business is, is increasing. And, you know, anecdotally, there's, there's some evidence that the same is true in politics. And I wanted to ask your opinion on the necessity or otherwise of somehow accelerating the path of youth and curiosity in leadership and, and not retrenching the people and the ideas that are more representative of the past. In the organizations that you've led, have you tried to accelerate new talent and, and give uh, new talent and younger people a, a role in the, these projects? And how as a leader did you do that? You know, we have tried to do that in part because I think younger generations are even more attuned to and committed to working on these problems with their professional livelihoods than perhaps in the past. And so in general, I wrote the book, frankly, for young leaders to build the confidence that they can work on these types of problems and do so with a mindset that allows them to grow their leadership role much more quickly than otherwise. And I feel very fortunate that because I got to work with Bill and Melinda Gates right when they were setting up their foundation, and that frankly, there weren't that many people there, and then, and then got to engage with President Obama like in the first week of, of a big new job on an absolute crisis that had me in and out of the Oval Office almost every day, and now get to lead this storied older institution, but to do it at a time of COVID and climate 
they're challenges that require these big pivots. I want young people to feel like these are a set of tools I wish I knew when I was in my 20s getting my first job because it's a mindset shift that allows you, I think, to be a more effective, inspiring, and rapidly ascending leader. It's a tricky problem, isn't it? Because the the experienced leaders in organizations will naturally want to hang on to their positions and and their experiences is not without value. But nevertheless, you know, new ideas, new opportunities, new faces need to be introduced for the sake of sustainability. How do you handle that as a sort of a tricky personnel issue? That is trickier, right? Like we, we have, especially the work we do requires a level of knowledge about institutions and topics. If you're trying to build a pandemic prevention system for the world, you have to know which institutions between the United States, China, Europe, and Latin America, and Africa need to be connected so data can be shared quickly and who's likely to do that. A lot of it comes down to knowing people and having that experience with people. So there's no question that knowledge, relationships, networks constitute the experience we value so much. But honestly, if you don't have younger people in the mix, you just don't tend to get the fresh, innovative solutions. It's why we often turn to partners like BCG to say, okay, are we thinking this through as creatively? Or what can we learn from industry or the technology sector or a company that's innovating a new AI tool that might be designed to map poverty around the world and help us be more precise in where we make our investments? So I really do think you need both and you just have to value both. And the way in the book I talk about leading is really being as results-oriented as possible. Like, you know, just because you're working on social change is not an excuse to say, well, we did good enough, so we're happy. It's actually, it demands the same rigor around measuring how many kids got vaccinated last year, how many didn't, how many people have Ebola, how many don't, you know, how many test kits are we distributing this week in the United States? in order to track and manage COVID and avoid a lockdown. Like you got to be quantitative and rigorous, just like you would in business. Otherwise, it's hard to bring everyone together on a common mission. Unfortunately, we're nearly out of time, Rajiv, but maybe I can end on a more personal question. You've carried out this, I've been involved in this tremendous variety of large-scale change projects. And I wanted to ask you what your next big challenge is. You know, maybe the next project or the next problem that gives you goosebumps. What what are you working on next? Well, let let me answer that in two ways. The first is, you know, I grew up around Detroit, Michigan, and I grew up in a family, you know, normal middle class, upper middle class family. And I never thought I'd have the opportunities I've, I've had to do this kind of work. And I wrote the book to help other people who might feel the same way really have the tools to do so. Today, I'm using, we're using those tools to tackle climate change at scale. And the foundation is all in on that mission. We know that uh, climate change, we're actually blowing past all these climactic tipping points faster than anybody realizes. The UN will soon come out with assessments that show we're going to blow past the Paris targets and numbers if we don't do something dramatically differently. And we think we can be the philanthropic risk capital that identifies new solutions and helps the world get on a more sustainable path. And we welcome anyone to join our mission alongside us and to work with us to do so. Uh, And that is our big bet of the future, that the climate transition itself can both address poverty and opportunity gaps, and that we can bend the curve in a way that, that helps save and protect our communities. 
Well, thanks so much for your important work, uh, Rajiv, and uh, congratulations on the book. And uh, thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much. Great to be with you. I've been discussing Big Bets, How Large-Scale Change Really Happens, which will be published in October 2023 by Rajiv Shah from Simon & Schuster. I think it's a a book about one of the most important topics in business, change, and I think relevant at a number of levels. I, I think the lessons on change, in my mind, are all applicable to business. I think that the social change that Rajiv talks about is also increasingly relevant to business. And as he said in our conversation, also, I think, very illuminating of how the nonprofit sector works. And that's an important input to the partnerships that businesses will need in the future. If you like this conversation, make sure you're subscribed on your favorite podcasting platform to the Thinkers and Ideas podcast. And we welcome your feedback as always.